Blog Talk Radio. And a good morning to everybody out there that are listening along the radio waves here. You are tuned in to Southern Sports Central on Blog Talk Radio, this fifth quarter edition of Southern Sports Central, the first of the year, as a matter of fact. And my name is Will Porter, and I will be coming at you live for two solid hours uh, as we start off uh, the 2020 uh, calendar year. It's the fourth day of 2020. And, man, just a, a crazy slate of sports to, to get into today. A lot of conversation to be had. If you want to join in on that conversation, uh, I'll give you the, the guest line number here. That number to call in is 323-784-9681. I would really love to hear uh, what, what you, the fan, have to say uh, about the host of topics that, uh, that we will be talking about today. Um, starting off with the NFL and the wild card weekend that is upon us now, and there are eight teams right now vying for a chance to play another Sunday. So we're going to be breaking down the games and making some predictions. Uh, as the AFC wild card games are today, uh, two of them as a matter of fact, and if I could pull those up here real quick, yeah, these games here will be kicking off to today this afternoon. Uh, the, NF, the AFC wild card playoffs are going to kick off at 4:35 with Buffalo and Houston, and then uh, Tennessee at New England at 8:15. And those are the two AFC wild card games. And the NFC games will be played uh, tomorrow afternoon uh, on on Fox and also on NBC. So a lot of action to get into. Plus uh, the college football realm, it's starting to wind down still. Uh, you've got a few games left. You got uh, you got one more bowl game. Uh, today, you got one more bowl game on Monday, and then the following Monday is the uh, college football playoff uh, national championship. So it should be a very fun weekend uh, of uh, games to still be to still be had to be played. Uh, and then also looking ahead into the college football playoff uh, just a little bit. Now, there's a lot that we can be able to dive into, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that for for talking and conversation points. Uh, during the weekday shows because uh, those are always fun there. Uh, and plus, it's so far out of the way, there's still a lot uh, a lot to be developed. Uh, I know the one thing that we can talk about possibly is uh, the fact of which which one is the real Death Valley. Is it Clemson or is it LSU? Uh, you know, which which one is the real Death Valley? Of course, they're gonna they're gonna battle that out uh, in two weeks from now. But also. That uh, this is this is news possibly to some people, but this is something that's been in the works for a while now. Is that they are on the calendar to play each other sometime in this decade, and it's going to be a trade-off of Clemson's going to go to LSU, and then LSU is going to come to Clemson. But nonetheless, uh, 
great, great matchup there that's going to happen on the 13th of January. Also, not to mention uh, a lot of men's basketball, uh, college basketball to get into. Um, there was there were quite a few good games last night, I, I do have to say. Uh, Wisconsin taking down number fifth-ranked Ohio State. That's going to be a talking point as well. And just kind of diving into – uh, diving into all of this, since we are uh, we are starting to merge into that uh, conversation now, because football is winding down. So uh, something else to talk about. That's one of the things to to talk about. Um, but man, a lot of good a, a lot of good sports uh, conversations to talk about. Just a lot of good uh, talking points. And if you want again to join into the conversation. The number to call in is 323-784-9681. Plus, uh, you can find us at uh, SO Sports Central right there on uh, Twitter. You can find us on Facebook at Southern Sports Central and be able to interact with us here uh, on the show. You know, a lot, of, a lot of stuff to get into, a lot of changes uh, that are happening within uh, – a lot of changes happening within NFL and coaches and – uh, just a, a lot of uh, a lot of topics to dive into. Uh, so without further ado, uh, we're going to take a quick time out here and uh, come back, regroup, and we will uh, get this show on the road. You are listening to the fifth quarter radio show on Southern Sports Central. We'll be right back. I'm 
Uh, and later he apologized for never winning a MAC championship during his three years at the school. Um, I get a lot of good things uh, coming out of that, uh, you know, coming out of that program. Uh, Ohio, of course, uh, being in the backyard of, of Joe Burrow, you know, they were, they were not very efficient on, on third downs, uh, you know, just only converting two of 11, but they were really efficient in fourth down two of two. Uh, 429 total yards, just one less of, of Nevada, as a matter of fact. But they, they really relied on their rushing game. Uh, they had 50 rushing attempts, uh, 285 yards in total for the team. And then uh, passing, uh, you know, through the air, 9 of 17 uh, completions uh, and no interceptions thrown in this game. I think it was very one-sided. Uh, no, it was not very one-sided. It was uh, the ball was kept for, for the game. And very disciplined football, only two penalties for Ohio, four for Nevada. Uh, those four coming uh, 58 yards for Nevada. And, again, uh, no no really, really bad turnovers. There were two turnovers by each of the teams. Both of them came on fumbles that got lost. Uh, and and Ohio controlled most of the clock. You know, I, I haven't seen a lot of what uh, Ohio has been able to do, you know, through through the years and years past. But, this was a very this was a very good game. I think a lot of strategy was played into this game and who won it. Uh, and you have, if in, in an Ohio team, you have a running back, a running back like uh, Demontre Tuggle, who in this game, he rushed for uh, 10 times for 97 yards uh, and ended up scoring a touchdown there uh, as well. And, and their, their leading receiver for Ohio is Isaiah Cox, and that and that's exactly what he did, uh, going up in the air three times for 73 yards, and he was just he was efficient in, in everything that he was able to do, um, and of course this, this game not not really the expectations uh, I should say uh, the expectations in this game as far as scoring who's going to be able to score more or less. I think it really just came down to who was going to be better executing uh, the ball on their side, who was going to be disciplined, and who, who was going to be able to um, get it where, where it mattered the most. Um, now, so, something to be noted that after the game, um, the Coach Scully revealed that uh, the receiver – or no, the running back, Tuggle, he finished as the Bobcats' leading rusher. He broke his pinky finger in warm-ups, and he wasn't sure if he was going to play. But when – Allison went out with an injury. Uh, Tuggle didn't hesitate to go. Um, and so, yeah, that's an interesting note to have. So, the Bobcats of Ohio, they will have a big question next season um, at quarterback. With work graduating, but there are plenty of reasons uh, to think that Ohio will be a serious contender for the MAC title. It is. Losing just two starters on offense and three on defense, it will be one of the most experienced uh, returning teams in the conference. Now, for Nevada, the Wolfpack will also enter next season with high hopes, uh, with Norville entering his fourth season with a, a bevy of returners, um, including quarterback Carson Strong, who finished with over 2,000 yards passing, and Elijah Cooks, who is the leading wide receiver. And Ohio will open up uh, their season by hosting NC Central, on September 5th, uh, the August 29th opener for Nevada, and they will be hosting uh, new uh, UC Davis, and that's going to be on August 
29th. So a lot of takeaways in this game and a lot of growth for these teams who are, are not in Power 5 conferences but nonetheless are uh, in great position to uh, to just move moving forward uh, with a young team, with an experienced team, and uh, only graduating again, what was that, only five starters on both sides of the ball for the Bobcats of Ohio. So, yeah, that, that's going to be a great game, uh, great games to be had, a great team to watch uh, into the 2020 uh, regular season. Now I want to look forward to today's game. This one's going to kick off at 1130, uh, believe it or not. This one's going to be an early kickoff game, and you can find this one, uh, I think, on ESPN. Uh, again, kickoff at 1130. It's going to be USM and uh, Tulane, so Southern Mississippi and Tulane, uh, their campus is only 100 miles apart, but they're going to be meeting in the uh, Lockheed Martin Armed Forces Bowl. That's going to be in Fort Worth, Texas at, at uh, uh, Amon G. Carter Stadium. It's going to be a cold one, looks like 37 degrees right now, uh, according to the AccuWeather forecast. Now, uh, Tulane is favored by a possession, a touchdown and a field goal. And the over-under is 56.5, so probably not a lot of scoring to be expected in this game. The expectation is that Tulane will win uh, will win this game. The school's football teams have been uh, frequent rivals, as a matter of fact. They have met 30 times since the year 1979. Uh, but it took an Armed Forces Bowl matchup on Saturday um, in Fort Worth, Texas, to expedite the resumption of a series that has been dormant since 2010. Uh, this is an old conference USA rivalry and two familiar foes. This is the uh, head coach of the Golden Eagles of Southern Mississippi, Jay Hobson, talking to the media er- earlier. He said, quote, it is a local game uh, that just creates fan interest. We'll have a great crowd on both sides, so it should be fun. Uh, now, the Golden Eagles, they are still in Conference USA, but the Green Wave in their sixth season in the American Athletic Conference, and they are scheduled to meet four times between – uh, 2022 and 2027. Now, the all-time series, Southern Mississippi leads at 23-7, to and they have won the last six meetings. Uh, and they faced each other every season from 1979 to 2006, and then again for a home-and-home home in 2009 and 2010. Uh, now, this is uh, it's a tough feeling and a kick in the gut, uh, Hobson said, and glad to be playing this year. I'm happy for our players, and they deserved, uh, they deserved it and worked for this. Now, uh, their schedule last season was trimmed to 11 games when their scheduled contest at Appalachian State in September was canceled. Hurricane Florence uh, threatened the Atlantic coast. That was uh, talking about uh, that game for, for Tulane. No, for Southern Mississippi uh, going up against Appalachian State, a game that didn't happen. So uh, Tulane comes into this game with an even record, 6-6. Six and six. Southern Mississippi at 7-5. and five. Now, uh, th- this game has a lot of things to, a lot of things to look at and just to, to predict. Southern Mississippi has won three of their last five. Tulane has slid. Uh, they they've hit a skid and only winning one of their last five. That was coming against uh, Tulsa, and they they've lost. It looks like that they have lost some close games. Uh, that Tulane has, anyways. Uh, Twenty-nine to twenty-one loss at Temple. A thirty-four thirty-one loss to UCF at home. And then on the road at SMU, they lost 37-20. to 20. That one there was their final game that they played and now coming into this game. Uh, it, it's easy to understand why uh, Tulane is, is 
kind of favored in this game because the the prediction would have them scoring about 33 points in this game and only allowing 27 points. That's how much. That's how many points that Southern Mississippi puts up on the board. Uh, they they the Green Wave they rack up more yardage for total yards. And it looks like that is pretty balanced. When um, Southern Mississippi kind of relies more on the on the air uh, through the air, 288 yards passing, only 122 on the ground. Um, the the one tell for Tulane though is that they happen to allow a lot of a lot of yards through the air. Uh, so keep an eye out on that secondary today. Again, this game kicks off at 11:30. Um, you know, quarterbacks quarterbacks to look out for. Uh, you have Southern Mississippi's quarterback Abraham. Uh, this is Jack Abraham. Uh, he, he's a six-foot junior uh, from Oxford, Mississippi. So he's a he's a home state uh, born and bred. He is currently on track uh, to pass a 3,500-yard mark on the season for passing. Uh, he's you know it looks like he's very efficient. He's thrown 18 touchdowns, but has 15 interceptions on the year. Then for Tulane. You have a quarterback in McMillan, Justin McMillan from Cedar Hill, Texas, six foot three senior, and he is tied for 75th on the season with how many touchdowns that he has thrown. Uh, currently, 2,229 yards, 14 touchdowns, and 10 interceptions. And so, uh, just looking at looking at the stats there, he, he's completing just about 60% of his passes. Um, I, I would expect this game again to come down to game plan as far as who who's going to be able to outcoach who because the personnel there are the personnel here to look at they are very uh, evenly matched they are very um, you know for the most part consistent on on both sides of the ball and then also through through the air I think a lot of their talent is, is going to come from that and not to mention that McMillan. Is, is also the leading rusher for the team, and he scored 12 touchdowns on his legs uh, with 152 carries for 704 yards. Um, and then Southern Mississippi has a weapon in Kevin Perkins. He is a six-foot junior uh, from Tunica, Mississippi. And, man, he is he, he's good for, for what they need, um, and they are updated um, stats on him. 102 carries, 548 yards, and three touchdowns. Uh, again, that just goes to show Southern Mississippi's uh, tendency to go through the air with a lot of what they do. Again, this is going to be a great game to watch. 11:30 in the morning, uh, kickoff is going to be on ESPN. Tulane is favored by seven. You can bet on this game if you want, or just just casually watch it. Uh, then there are going to be more games to come, of course. Um, UL and the Raging Cajuns uh, against uh, Miami of Ohio. I think this is Miami of Ohio. Uh, and then, of course, the college football playoff national championship in two weeks. This is going to be Clemson facing off against LSU in the national championship game. This is going to be at the Superdome uh, in New Orleans. So probably a home game type atmosphere for LSU. Some Some other news to talk about. Uh, coming out of college football, a lot of players that are going to be headed to the NFL draft. Uh, one of those, the most recent being Jonathan Taylor, the running back from Wisconsin. He has declared himself 
to go into the NFL draft after a, a very spectacular season, winning winning a bunch of awards and and going for um, going for a win there in the uh, Rose Bowl, and that was just a couple of days ago. So um, he has announced his intention to declare uh, declare for the 2020 draft. He uh, foregoes his final year of eligibility. He was a three-year starter for the Badgers, compiling 6,000, if you heard that right, 6,174 rushing yards, uh, ranking second on the school's all-time rushing list behind Ron Dane. Um, he is sixth on the NCAA's all-time list, and no player has ever rushed for more yards uh, through his junior season. And so he totaled 2,003, 2,000 plus three. Yards rushing in 2019 while finishing fifth in the Heisman Trophy voting the third straight year. He finished in the top ten of that voting. Um, Taylor said uh, of turning pro on the Rich Eisen show in October, he said that's the goal. That would be the goal if everything plans out well. You can't look too far ahead, but you know, of course, everyone at this level would love to be there in February. And now Taylor is currently ranked as the number 26 overall player in the 2020 class is the third ranked player, um, third ranked running back for uh, Bleacher Reports, Matt Miller. And I would imagine that he is ranked a little bit higher on that uh, for Mel Kuyper's uh, draft class. But uh, should Taylor come off the board in the first round, he'll be the first Wisconsin player to be drafted on the first day since 2017. The Badgers have not had a player drafted higher than the third round in either of the previous two drafts. Um, he, he's bonafide as a runner or in question, but his first round stock is hurt by his lack of pass catching prowess. He's only compiled 42 receptions in three seasons at Wisconsin, including just 16 in his first two. Um, the, that's part, uh, partly schematic, um, with teams emphasizing in the versatility at running back more than ever. Now it's possible that Taylor will fall to, uh, day two. I don't think. Um, I don't think that that is going to happen. Uh, this is this is a talent. This is a talented guy who has won. He has won a bunch of games. He has won uh, several awards, and just the talent on his legs um, to get him there is is just remarkable. And he hit the 2,000 yard mark uh, in the Rose Bowl. Uh, certainly wish that he was able to run more and possibly win that game for the Badgers, but that's just how the chips fall. And so he announced his decision uh, last night, and he sits at the number one uh, draft-eligible running back, and he is the 16th-highest-rated player overall on Mel Kuyper's big board. Um, and, and he's a top recruit from Philadelphia. And um, and so this this is going to be this is going to be good. Now, also DeAndre Swift is going to enter uh, the draft. Then this is the one number one draft-eligible running back and the number 16th-highest-rated player on the big board for Mel Kuyper. Um, Jonathan Taylor, I'm going to try to find this out. He is ranked somewhere in top. Uh, he is the number three running back uh, behind Ohio State's J.K. Dobbins and Georgia's DeAndre Swift. And uh, he ran for 94 yards on 21 carries there in the Rose Bowl. Now to, uh, to DeAndre Swift from Georgia. So he – is going to forego his senior season and enter the NFL draft as well. And he is a top recruit again. Uh, he rushed for 1,218 yards and seven touchdowns this season. 
um, wishing that he could have more yards and more um, more attempts to play in a game because of nagging injuries that, that he has uh, been fighting throughout most of this year. Now he's an adept pass catcher, and Swift called a combined 56 passes in the past two seasons. Um, and Georgia will be without its number two running back next season as well as Brian Herring graduates. Um, and so you have backups that are going to return, sophomore James Cook and freshman uh, Zamir White. They both played. Uh, so the Bulldogs will add to the mix. Uh, they will add a four-star recruit, Kendall Milton, uh, whom ESPN ranks as the eighth best running back in the 2020 class. So a lot to look at there uh, on on the running back side of things. Um, of course, your Chase Young is going to be going pro. Uh, a, a lot of a lot of players that have announced who what they're going to do, what their plans are uh, to enter into the the draft, making decisions for their futures. And I, I don't blame them because there is a lot of uh, a lot of talent that is going to uh, going to enter, a lot of talent that you can look at as far as you know recruiting and who's going to be coming in and uh, who's going to be who's going to be transporting um, transporting to different institutions and to different programs because the coaches and the programs and head coaches everybody is trying to get who they need and. So it's also the matter of what's going to be best for me, what's going to be best for uh, for me as moving forward. Well, you heard the three players so far right now that have entered into um, are going to announce that they're entering the draft. Now, a lot of questions still up in the air uh, as far as Tua. Uh, Tua is going to make his decision come Monday uh, as to what he is going to do uh, in in the NFL draft, is he going to go? Is he going to stay and play his last year at Alabama? Um, with that being said, we're going to take a quick timeout here and uh, come back and rejoin um, th- this topic of conversation. Speaking of conversation, if you want to join in, feel free to call the show. Uh, the number to call in is 323-784-9681. Again, that number is 323-784-9681. Quick time out here. We will be right back. This is the fifth quarter radio show on Southern Sports Central. Here it is, the groove slightly transformed. Just a bit of a break from the norm Just a little something to break the monotony Of all that hardcore dance That has gotten to be a little bit out of control It's cool to dance But what about a groove that soothes the move romance Give me a soft, subtle mix And if it ain't broke, then don't try to fix it And think of the summers of the past Adjust the bass and let the alpine blast Pop in my CD and let me run around And put your car on cruise and lay back Cause this is summertime Weather is hot and girls are dressing less and checking out the fellas and tell them who's best. 
Riding around in your Jeep or your Benzos Or in your Nissan sitting on Lorenzo's Back in Philly, we be out in the park A place called the Plateau is where everybody goes Guys out hunting and girls doing likewise Honking at the honey in front of you with the light eyes She turn around to see what you beeping at it's like the summer's a natural aphrodisiac. And with a pen and pad, I compose this rhyme to hit you and to get you equipped for the summertime. in here to this Saturday edition of Southern Sports Central. I'm your host, Will Porter, and this is, again, Southern Sports Central, the fifth quarter radio show. Uh, still coming at you for two solid hours. We are midway through the first one, and again, a lot of topics to talk about today. Um, and in, in this discussion, you have three running backs, I think, that have declared for uh, the NFL draft, and so the question then becomes, you know, who would you pick? Would you pick uh, Jonathan Taylor, J.K. Dobbins, or or DeAndre Swift. Now, DeAndre Swift is uh, one of the one of the top running backs in, in the country. Uh, again, this is, a, this is a stellar top three, and two of them are from the Big Ten. Uh, we've heard we've heard Jonathan Taylor uh, mentioned his name a, a lot throughout the year, as far as going for going for records and continuing to rush and, and put up big numbers. Uh, but who would you rather choose? Uh, would you rather choose J.K. Dobbins from Ohio State, who has uh, been able to rack up some some serious points and, and a firepower uh, team under Ohio State uh, that just came so close into getting into a national championship berth, or would it be Georgia and, Jay, uh, uh, and DeAndre Swift? He he's been very consistent. Um, unfortunately, uh, some injuries have nagged him throughout most of the season, and so his ability to uh, continue to be uh, as consistent as uh, I would assume this as much as he wants to be uh, is kind of shoved aside. Or Jonathan Taylor, who we've heard of a lot throughout the year and winning awards 
and just being a stellar ball player all around, an all-around great guy as well, somebody that you would want to have in your locker room. Uh, me personally, I, I, it's, it's a toss-up between these guys. But if I were to choose, I think it would be Jonathan Taylor. Uh, just because he's uh, he's been that consistent and being able to uh, be be in the top five of the Heisman voting, I think for the past two or three years, and just an amazing just an amazing run that he has had. No pun intended. <laughs> an amazing run that he has had at Wisconsin and really like in ways putting the team on his back on on his shoulders uh, because this is a team that that really relies on the run game and they they built up the uh, the program around him and unfortunately. Uh, that only got them so far, and and to get a Rose Bowl berth. Uh, so, without further ado, uh, I, I want to shift topics. Still talking in college football, uh, Mississippi State's decision uh, to fire Joe Moorhead after two seasons. This news came down yesterday, um, and it was speculated for a while now. But you know, you lose to a, a Missouri or, or you know a, a Louisville. Louisville team, 38-28 in the Music City Bowl, and then there was speculation about uh, him going to be let go. And, and they, they fired him yesterday afternoon, and they ended his two-year tenure at the school after two bowl appearances. And the Mississippi State Bulldogs, they, uh, I mean, they, they were a good team. Um, they were a good team this year, unfortunately, uh, throughout his tenure, he was a 14 and 12 record. Um, that he there was that loss to Louisville again on Monday, and so it takes them time to, dra- to kind of drag their feet and then say, okay, we're going to cut you. So, um, at the athletic director, John Cohen said on Friday in a news conference, in this case, it goes a little bit beyond just wins and losses. Although I want to state for sure that wins and losses matter. There were some other issues at stake we had to consider. Um, Moorhead arrived at the Mississippi State's football building shortly at, shortly before 9 a.m. local time and was informed of his dismissal. Then uh, he took to Twitter late Friday to describe his, quote, pretty emotional day with a letter thanking the university president, Mark Keenum, uh, again, the athletic director, Cohen, alumni, uh, students, fans, his coaches, and staff in, in the city of Starkville, Mississippi. And he wrote in his post, uh, lastly and most importantly, I would like to thank our players and families. I appreciate all the hard work and dedication you've put in over the past two seasons. I am proud of the things we were able to accomplish on the field, in the classroom, and in the community. I hope I have made a positive impact on your lives and helped you grow as a student, a person, and a player. I love all of you and will always just be a phone call away. My family and I will always cherish our time in Starkville. Part of us will always bleed maroon and white. We wish the program nothing but the best moving forward. The university officials were concerned about the culture and discipline and the program under Joe Moorhead. And they were not only upset by the team's performance in the Music City Bowl, but also with the situation involving quarterback Garrett Schrader, who missed the game with an eye injury reported. Um, after reportedly suffering um, that injury during an altercation at practice. And Cohen said this regarding how much of the impact of uh, the reports of an altercation had on his decision. Uh, it, is, uh, it is the only factor? No. Uh, but this is a factor, one of several factors. 
and Moorhead was expected to be fired by Mississippi State uh, to be fired if Mississippi State lost to Ole Miss in the Egg Bowl. Um, and we all know how the Egg Bowl went. Um, and that win made Mississippi State Bowl eligible. Uh, and Ole Miss fired Coach Matt Luke four days later after that. Uh, now this is this is the fourth change, coaching change in the SEC, the third in the SEC West, and all of the previous openings have been filled before the start of the early national signing period uh, for the high school recruits back on the 18th of last month. Now, Morehead is 46, is the fourth Power Five head coach who um, was hired. Uh, prior to the 2018 season uh, to be fired. And he joins uh, Luke, Willie Taggart at FSU, and Chad Morris. Uh, I, I, it, it, it's shocking. I, like, I really have no words. Uh, because this, I, I can understand it being in the SEC West and that being a, a Mississippi State team that – I would say it is used to it is used to being up there, but it has not been, and it's been very mediocre for the past two seasons. And that win, or what would have been a win if they were were able to pull the rabbit out of the hat, if Mississippi State was going to win against Louisville, that would have been the the that would have been the point for um, Moorhead to save his job. But of course, that never happened. And so the athletic director Cohen is saying that Tony Hughes uh, is one of the associate head coaches. He will serve as the interim head coach uh, while a search is being conducted. Now, potential replacements include Louisiana coach Billy um, Napier and former Auburn coach um, Gene Chizik. And Cohen said it's going to have to start with discipline. It's going to have to start with having a hard edge. It's going to start with helping student-athletes go bro- grow both on and off the field going to start with somebody who has a passion for Mississippi State specifically. Uh, and as he discussed his search for Warhead's replacement, he said, um, Cohen said that he wouldn't make Southern roots or an SEC background a, a prerequisite, but he also emphasized finding a coach who is, quote, the best fit for Mississippi State University and noted that it is a, quote, unique place. He described his program, we're a blue-collar, competitive, and hard-nosed football team. We play in the best, best division in the best conference in the entire country. We carry a chip on our shoulder, and we have to outwork other people. Um, now, Moorhead, he succeeded Dan Mullen, who left for Florida after the 2017 season. Uh, and, and prior to his arrival at Mississippi State, he coordinated uh, record-setting offenses at Penn State under Coach James Franklin. Uh, and those two seasons, he averaged 39.3 points, 446 yards per game, uh, over those seasons, and then the, those numbers dipped uh, with Moorhead's two seasons at Mississippi State, and they went two of, two and five against AP ranked opponents, losing the last four matchups by an average margin of twenty seven point eight points. Um, and after leading FBS by giving up just an average of four point one three yards per play in twenty eighteen, they tumbled. They gave up six point three yards per play. That's ranked one hundred and seventh in the country. And Moorhead is from Pittsburgh. He'd been mentioned as a candidate for Rutgers, their coaching vacancy, which ultimately went to Greg uh, Schiano. Um, 
and Moorhead went 38-13 and 13 as Fordham's coach with three FCS playoff appearances before going to Penn State. So, a lot of questions now because this, this was a very late firing. This was uh, incredibly late in, in the college football season or as the, in the scope of things for the college football season, this firing of Moorhead. Is, is it the best move? I, I would say yes, if they deem that this is a move that, that needed to be made and it, and it becomes a question of who is going to be, who is going to be the replacement, well, you're going to probably end up being in this position, position for another year because the, all the coaching vacancies are kind of filled up now. And it's a question of who's going to want to join a program that, according to you, doesn't have much of a, a strong culture uh, in the roots of Mississippi State. Now, I think that's a priority, and, that, and that's the one good thing about this firing of Joe Moorhead. And I, I don't want to sound like it's good that the man lost his job, but if it needed to be for the sake of the culture with the team and as far as the culture of the Mississippi State Bulldog program, I think that it is the best move. Uh, not not the proper timing, not really the timing that I would want to do it. I would have left myself a little bit of time to be able to scan the coaching market and see, put an offer out there and see who would bite. Yeah, but nonetheless, it is uh, it, it is what it is. And the matter of of moving forward with this uh, and what they were able to do, um, so it, it, it is going to be it's going to be very telling. Now, some more news coming out. Uh, this is according to sources. Uh, after the shutout loss in the bowl game, Miami is going to turn to uh, Rhett Lashy as the offensive coordinator. Um, so they're going to hire that offensive coordinator to overtake the same position. Now, last year has led SMU's offense the past two seasons. He will replace Dan Enos, who was fired um, the other week. And the hire will likely be announced next week. Uh, and the Miami Herald first reported last year's expected move to Miami. He's 36 and has held coordinator jobs at SMU, Auburn, Connecticut, Arkansas State, and Stanford. Um, not Stanford, Sam Ford. Uh, the former Arkansas quarterback, he played high school football for Gus Malzahn in the state uh, and spent much of his early coaching career working under Gus Malzahn. Of course, you know that Miami, they fired Eno shortly after the team's uh, 14-0 loss to Louisiana Tech in the Independence Bowl, um, which, by the way, was the first shutout loss in a bowl game since 1994 for uh, the Miami Hurricanes. Um and they have struggled at quarterbacking them along the offensive line. So uh, Miami coach Manny Diaz, he, he told the radio station this past Monday, uh, there's going to be a dramatic change in how we look on offense and the style that we play with. Um, we're going to get the tempo jacked up here. We're going to start to spread the ball out, get the ball to our athletes in space and do something there that hasn't been done and people have not seen. Um, and SMU, they have won 10 games this past season. They rank seventh nationally and points scored and ninth in yards per game. The Mustangs closed the season with a 52 and 28 loss uh, to Florida Atlantic in the Boca Raton bowl. Now 
I can understand, or I do understand, as a matter of fact, that Rhett Lashley going to Miami and this being a Power 5 job and a possibility to uh, be able to coach up an offense and only really having to worry about that. But honestly, if I were in his shoes, I would be going – I would still be staying at SMU. I, I say that. Because only at SMU would you have the um, the the chance to have your name be a part of of something great. Because this is a team, this is a program that is rebounding from uh, the death penalty back in the eighties, and they are still they are still rebounding. They they are they have been rebounding for the past twenty twenty almost thirty years, and they are now primed and set uh, to possibly be a great program in the future uh, to contend for national titles possibly because this is a, this is a team, uh, a program that is, uh, was looked at for some time to be a powerhouse. And then we all know some of you that don't know what happened with the death penalty. Well, uh, they were, they were doing things that they weren't supposed to do uh, in regards to paying players to come play for them and the compensation that they would receive. But um but yeah, that that that's a. I think I would say that that's a good move for uh, what Lashy wants to do. But like, again, is it the right move? And and, and that's the question uh, for him and for a lot of folks uh, that in a lot of the programs that are making these that are making these changes now. Speaking of changes, uh, you know, PJ Fleck he just won a bowl game, but he is. Um, he is making some changes to his uh, offensive coordinator vacancy. He promoted um, he promoted Matt, Matt Simon to fill his offensive coordinator vacancy, and he hired Mike Sanford Jr. Um, he will serve as the quarterback's coach, and he held the dual role at Utah State this past year, and he was the head coach at Western Kentucky for two seasons prior to that. After a stint at, as offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach at Notre Dame and Boise State, uh, he's, he's been on the staff at Stanford, Yale, UNLV. He's played quarterback at Boise State. He Now, Stanford will officially be the offensive coordinator, while Simon, who will also continue as wide receivers coach, um, had had his title elevated to co-offensive coordinator all of this after – uh, handling the play calling in the Outback Bowl victory over Auburn on Wednesday, uh, and they finished 11 and two, the 31 and 24 win. They had 494 total yards, and they will replace both of these coaches. They will replace Kirk um, Shiroka, who had served as offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach under Fleck since he became the head coach at Western Michigan in 2013, following him to Minnesota in 2017. And he was hired last week by Penn State for the same post. I think this is a good, um, a good shuffle. Strange shuffle because it, it does come after a bowl game win. Um, but but Penn State obviously wanted, um, they they wanted Kirk, and so they got him. And so then PJ Fleck had to make some shuffles, um, make a few shuffles here and around um, around the way. Speaking of coaches, this was a very interesting piece uh, by Charlotte Gibson on ESPN. Who's your highest paid? Who's the highest paid 
in your state? You know, who's the most powerful person in your state? Well, based on a public employee salaries, it's likely a college coach. Sorry, governors of, of respected said states. Um, a whopping 28 college football coaches are the best-paid employees in their states, along with 12 college hoops coaches who top the state payrolls. So you want to check out the map below to find your state's top-earning public officials, um, plus the governor's salary. Now, here it is. It's going to start out with Alabama, Nick Saban. He makes $8.9 million a year. Uh, Kay Ivey is the governor. He makes 120.4000. Now, in, in Alabama, the median household income is around four hundred or $48,123. It would take 185 of median income people to match Saban's salary. In South Carolina, no question there, it's, Nick, uh, it's Dabo Sweeney because he's the highest paid uh, coach in all of sports right now for, for college football, as a matter of fact, $9.3 million. Henry McMaster, he makes $106.1,000 a year. In the median household, $50,000, it would take 184 people to match Sweeney's salary per year. Um, you know, same, same thing with Georgia, Kirby Smart. Six point nine million. I, I would imagine that's Dan Mullen in Florida. Six point one million. And it, it, just all around looking at this, you know, the highest paid, the highest paid coaches in all of sports right now. You know, Dabo Sweeney and John Calipari both have nine point three million dollars in their pockets or, or per year. John Calipari, of course, is the basketball coach at Kentucky. Then it's Nick Saban in Alabama. Jim Harbaugh at Michigan, Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M, Kirby Smart at Georgia, um, Jeff Rome at Purdue, Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma, Dan Mullen at Florida, James Franklin at Penn State, Scott Frost at Nebraska, um, Kirk Frentz at Iowa, and uh, Chris, Chris Peterson at Washington, uh, the former coach of Washington. He's still getting paid. Uh, Ryan Day at Ohio State, Tony Bennett at Virginia. That's the basketball coach. Uh, Bill Self at Kansas is also a basketball coach. Paul Christ at Wisconsin. You want to take a look at the basketball payrolls. It's a huge split, man. John Calipari makes $9.3 million a year. Tony Bennett from Virginia, who just won a national championship, by the way, um, $4.2 million. That's a big, That's a big split. And obviously, I should note this, that the payroll for um, Coach K – at Duke is not listed on here. I I would want to say because Duke is a is a private institution, uh, and so they don't have to disclose uh, this information. But looking at this, Bill Self at Kansas, that's a notable name. Um, Bob Huggins at West Virginia, I think that's another notable name. Roy Williams at UNC, that is one. Dan Hurley at UConn. Um, Mark Turgeon at Maryland. You go all the way down, just going down this list, there, there are a lot of notable names here on the list. Now, of course, does this mean that, um, you know, dollars and wins? Math is pretty simple. For most names on, the, on this list, win more, make more. But for some, and like, like Chad Morris, um, the paycheck isn't as guaranteed boost with the wind hole. Uh, and, and you have the three worst um, win percentages among highest paid coaches in both sports. Now, Kunzo Martin at Missouri, he was paid $2.8 million. 
he hasn't even won half of his games. He's sitting at 46.9%. Power five power power players. Dabo Sweeney makes $9.3 million in the ACC. Tony Bennett for basketball in Virginia. And it's Maryland's coach in the Big Ten, Jim Harbaugh uh, for football, Mark Turgeon for basketball. Bill Self at Kansas for basketball. Lincoln Riley for football at Oklahoma in the Big 12. Pac-12 has Chris Peterson, the former coach at Washington again. And then uh, Dan Altman, uh, Dana Altman at Oregon. And then in the SEC, John Calipari and Nick Saban. We all know those. And so, I mean, it, it, this is it's absolutely crazy to, to look at these numbers here. Um, $24.2 million is the combined – I think the combined salary for the four college football playoff coaches. They bank about four times what the 50 governors make um, combined overall. That is $6.9 million. Wow. And then Saban's salary for the 2019 season uh, is $8.9 million. $5.6 million is the other 14 head coaches uh, in, in the SEC. Their combined salaries in 2019 sit there. So it was a very interesting article uh, to come across, and, and it is it's very telling uh, for the direction that uh, college athletics is going. Uh, speaking of college athletics, uh, at the turn of the hour, we're going to talk a little bit of college basketball action to be uh, to be mentioned as uh, that's starting to pick up we are now in, in conference play for for these teams and the expectations that they have uh, for for one another and just the the expectations that are set for for these teams um, some of them that have made it to the final four others that have um, not but are expected to in in the near future and so it is Again, this is a this is a very great transition uh, from from football into basketball now for for the college um, for the college viewer and and the college fan, uh, as a matter of fact. So, uh, without further ado, we are going to take a timeout here and transition into hour number two in just a minute. Again, if you want to call into the show and be a guest here on Southern Sports Central, this uh, fifth quarter radio show. Feel free to do that. The number to call in is 323-784-9681. And, uh, you know, join the conversation. Let, let us know your, your thoughts and opinions on, on games that have passed, the games to come. And we'll, we'll dabble into whatever it is that you want to talk about because this, this show is for the listener. And uh, the listener wants what it wants, then we shall do it. Asking ye shall receive. That's a, that's a saying, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, a quick timeout here, and we will come right back into hour number two. Again, you are listening to the Southern Sports Central fifth quarter right here on Block Talk Radio. We'll be right back. My family and I were suffering with no protection from the hot Carolina sun. I called the Tent Farm, and they told me about their line of ceramic window film. Now I have 99.9% protection from harmful UV rays for the ones that matter the most. You don't have to be a math teacher like me for those numbers to make sense. Don't be alarmed, call the farm. I was driving in extreme Charleston heat. I couldn't take it any longer. I wasn't alarmed, I called the farm. I used to be the victim of bad tents. It was so horrible, I was embarrassed to be seen driving even in my own hometown. 
I called the tent farm, and they took care of me. I wasn't alarmed. I called the farm. I'm Jonathan Farmer, owner and founder of Tent Farm. Are you a victim of bad tent? Are you suffering from extreme heat? We here at the Tent Farm want to help you with these horrible conditions. Don't be alarmed. Call the farm. And welcome back in here to this fifth quarter show coming at you. Hour uh, number one is done. Number Hour number two is coming to you. That's right. Making some rhymes here. Spitting bars on Southern Sports Central. My name is Will Porter, and you are listening to the, the first fifth quarter show of the new year 2020s. Finally, here is arrived and a lot of good things. To wrap up hour number one, we talked about um, just a lot of the – spectrum across the uh, the NCAA uh, football world, a lot of the coaching changes, a lot of the uh, the games that have been played and, and the game to come today. Um, and of course, there's going to be a game on Monday, but we will leave it to um, to the show tomorrow or, or on Monday to break, the, break that one down and um, to provide a little bit more insight uh, with, with Richie at the helm. Uh, he's going to be back on Monday, of course, and uh, and hosting the the normal show from seven to nine, uh, right here on Southern Sports Central. So if you found us here uh, today, be sure to tune in on Monday. It's a great show uh, throughout the week that we uh, line up guests and uh, being able to have a, uh, conversations with you guys. And uh, speaking of those conversations, again, the number three two three seven eight four nine six eight one. Going to transition now into uh, basketball uh, for the the NCAA basketball realm. But before we do that, I want to take a quick moment to thank uh, a few of our sponsors. Of course, this is uh, Gerns Pharmacy in the studios. They they sponsor us for, and it's fantastic to um, you know to be able to have a place to call home, and they they allow us to do that. Um, yeah, they allow us to do that on a on a daily basis and being able to bring you a, a very uh, five-star quality show. I also want to thank Matt's Burgers and the Fan Zone, the Fan Zone in Charleston. Uh, if you want to, you want to check out what they've got, uh, you can you can check them out at thefanzone.com and uh, you know shop tons of memorabilia that are that are in that store. Uh, a lot of things. You know, if you if you are a sports fanatic, and I say fanatic and you want to get you a gift for yourself or for somebody else, there, that's, that's your one-stop shop right there. And they have so much stuff that they have to rent out uh, two, two units. It's not just one. Yes, uh, you got two suites full of uh, sports stuff to, to just uh, buy at your heart's content, <laughs> um, with how, however much you want. Uh, so last night was, I think, the second games um, of – of the new year for for most of these teams, uh, if not the first of the year, and the biggest the biggest one the biggest storyline was uh, Big Ten uh, Big Ten basketball uh, up there in Ohio with Ohio State hosting Wisconsin and then Wisconsin putting a uh, putting the beat down on them sixty one to fifty seven is your final score uh, from Ohio State 
uh, fifth-ranked Ohio State, as a matter of fact, and, and the, how they fall. This was at Value City Arena in Columbus. And uh, Ohio State, they they were really they were really expected to win most of this game uh, for much of this game they they only trailed by they only trailed by so much uh, I think they had Wisconsin down um, by by seven at one point in the game um, very early on and then it, it just kind of stayed close but Wisconsin was able to uh, hit shots what they needed to and and they rallied rallied late Wisconsin did um, you know they, they the the jumper. <laughs> was one of the things that, that I can recall from this game watching it last night um, that there were four three throws, four three throws, four free throws. That's the new word to say. Uh, four three free throws. Boy, I can't even say it now. Um, they were hitting the last 14 seconds to seal the road win upset against the number five Buckeyes. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of key players in this game, but one of them is – um, Nate Reavers, uh, he scored 17 points and he uh, keyed the late rally in the 61-57 win Friday night in front of a sellout crowd that opened the grueling Big Ten stretch for both teams. Now Wisconsin coming in here unranked, they were uh, eight and five, and they improved to nine and five. Ohio State uh, only suffers their third loss of the season, but I, I can imagine that when the rankings come out on Monday, that that will uh, that will be different. Um, and Ohio State was a seven-and-a-half-point favorite, and they have lost a second straight game. Um, and they got a terrific performance from uh, Caleb Wesson. He had 22 points and 13 rebounds, but he missed a three-pointer with 19 seconds left that would have tied the score at 57. And and after that, Ohio State just had to start fouling if they wanted any chance to win this game. Um, and then by the time the, the score went up to 61, uh, with about – Four four seconds left. That was just the end of it. Um, you now both teams, if you if you should know, they started slowly and they struggled from the field. Uh, Wisconsin missed its first five shots and they finished uh, shooting 38 percent. And Ohio State Ohio State shot 40 percent. Uh, now the big picture: the Badgers uh, they stayed in the game they, despite their poor shooting and turnovers. And they secured a satisfying win to start a long stretch of Big Ten games. Now this was the definition of a team win. Um, you know, they had to grow and experience some growing pains. Um, as we've come through November and December, this is, I think this is head coach uh, talking um, right now, guard. And, you know, not to mention the, the effort that they, have, that they made just to battle and keep finding a way, uh, getting contributions from a lot of different places. Now, uh, Kyle Young is the six foot nine power forward for Ohio State, and they are playing without him. He is recovering from appendix surgery. Um, so Wesson, he, ha- he had to carry the load inside, and the Buckeyes missed. Um, because they missed Young and they couldn't finish the game off, they probably should have won. Now with two straight losses, Ohio State will slide down the rankings um, after being as high as number two. Um, and, and so Wisconsin will host Illinois on Wednesday night, and Ohio State will play at Maryland on Tuesday night. And so this is a game – that has a lot of implications as far as, uh, you know, just as far as who's going to uh, go far in the Big Ten. Because they, these, are, these are very grueling games. Big Ten basketball is no joke uh, in certain parts, in certain aspects that, that you look at. And this was a confidence win for Wisconsin as well. I, I should note that. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the starters 
they they got really good minutes, really good minutes, effective minutes. You know, Wisconsin, uh, you know, in total uh, shooting 37% from the field, only making you know 21 shots uh, from three point range, 26%. They hit six six 23 from three. Uh, and hitting 81% of their of their free throws, and then just on the other side of the ball with Ohio State, they they were just not not as effective as um, Wisconsin was on free throws, only making 13 of 17. Um, you know, but it, it really came down to who who was going to be shooting it from the field, uh, and, and you can definitely tell that they um, again that Ohio State missed their uh, power forward in Kyle Young because that was. Uh, something that they they desperately needed, but unfortunately, he won't be back until probably midway through this conference play in the new year. Uh, there was a lot of talk again surrounding what what he was going to what he was going to bring to the table, and and how just how much they actually missed him. Um, moving on to the second game of the night that I uh, I had the pleasure to watch and and was just very entertaining. Uh, was I think this was a Big East matchup here. Uh, Georgetown going up against the Hall, that is Seton Hall, and Seton Hall won seventy-eight to sixty-two. I know the score doesn't really um, doesn't really amount to that, but the, the the quality of the game I do have to say was was just really uh, really awesome, uh, really awesome to watch, uh, and. It also goes without saying that, that Seton Hall has a um, – they have a star player. I, I, I have to say this. I cannot express it enough. Uh, with Miles Powell, number 13 from Seton Hall, he is a 6'2 senior from Trenton, New Jersey, and he, he's probably the leading scorer, I think, in, in the Big East uh, right now. And, and that's something that they talk about. Um, something that they talked about last night, as far as uh, him being utilized, and he he was able to hit a bunch of a, a bunch of three pointers late in the game to to put the game away uh, for for Seton Hall and putting it out of the reach of Georgetown. Georgetown is now ten and five. Seton Hall improves to ten and four, and, and these are the second games that the Big East has has played. Um, and, and with these with these games, Georgetown, of course. Uh, they they are going to be playing the likes of uh, Xavier. Uh, no, Georgetown is going to be playing St. John's at home, and then uh, Seton Hall will be playing Xavier on the road on Wednesday. Um, so not really much to dissect here because it was the the game is a fifteen point uh, sixteen point differential. Um, but Romaro Gill, um, he scored a career high seventeen points. And he ended up fouling out, and that, that, that's nonetheless. Uh, the biggest thing in this game was uh, six players getting ejected. It was a, a late tussle uh, in the contest. And with just over three minutes left in the game, tempers flared um, as Georgetown, Georgetown's Mac McClung and Seton Hall's Quincy McKnight, they exchanged some words. And after some, some pushing and shoving between several players, um, McClung and McKnight were assessed technical fouls and four Hoyas uh, from Georgetown and two Pirates from Seton Hall uh, that left the bench during the skirmish, they were ejected, and they went back to the locker room. That game was only about three minutes left, but, you know, it, it, it is what it is and, and what happened. Um, I tell you, Romaro Gill, he also grabbed eight rebounds and four blocks. 
Uh, Miles Taylor, he added 16 points with five threes for the Pirates, while Miles Powell chipped in uh, 15 points and a season-high six assists. Uh, Quincy McKnight, he had 14 points and 10 assists. His first double-double this season and, and the fifth of his career for Seton Hall. Uh, they are now improved to 10-4, and four, and they are 2-0 and oh in the I mean, night he had 14 points and 10 assists. That was his first double-double uh, this season and the fifth of his career. Uh, and Seton Hall now, they improved to 10-4 and 2-0 and in the Big East. Uh, and they have earned their fourth straight win. Um, you know, Mac McClung, he had 20 points for the Hoyas. And Jamar Pickett added 10 points and 9 rebounds. And the Pirates took a double-digit lead with seven minutes left in the first half. They were up by 17 at the break and didn't let the Hoyas get closer than 11 for the rest of the game. So that, that, that game was uh, it was very entertaining to watch. And, and I am surprised that, that Seton Hall is not higher up uh, in the rankings with, uh, with the performance that they put on and with the talent that they have uh, surrounding them. Uh, some, other, some other notable games uh, to look at, that was really the only ranked, uh, only ranked matchup that was, uh, that was played. That was uh, Wisconsin-Ohio State uh, in the Big Ten. Uh, UCF and Houston, uh, they played each other last night, uh, not to mention uh, UCF going on the road at Houston and uh, Houston picking up a, a great win um, as um, Nate Hinton for, for Houston. He scored 20 points, grabbed a career-high 16 rebounds. That's his sixth double-double this season, and Houston tops Central Florida on Friday night, winning their fifth straight game. And they improved to eleven and three. UCF is struggling down the stretch at nine and five. Uh, you know something something notable to look at this game. Uh, Houston is one and zero now in the American Athletic Conference. They are eleven and three overall. Like I said, um, Houston led thirty seven to thirty three at halftime and saw UCF cut its lead to two points twice in the early going of the second half. But uh, Frank Burks cut the gap to forty seven forty five with a three pointer at 13:40 only to see Houston take off on a 12 and 1 run over the next four or so minutes and then Jerome made 7 of 8 from line in that stretch now um Davin Ingram had 13 points, 9 rebounds and 6 assists for the Knights um and Colin Smith added 11 points and 11 rebounds Caesar De Jesus added 10 points Houston's going to play Temple Central Florida is going to face SNU both games on the road next week on on Tuesday and on Wednesday. Now Houston, they're they're really good as as far as their their consistency and being able to, um, you know, like really being able to spread the floor uh, for the most part. Uh, they're very consistent with their uh, with their free throws, um, hitting seventy eight. You, obviously, you can wish that that was better. Um, but something something very telling for them is that you know for for Houston that they're they're really good on the rebounds. And that there were 32 total rebounds in in that game uh, for for them on the defensive side uh, of the glass, and, and 12 assists. They worked together very well. 
Um, and, and they played defense very effectively uh, with nine steals, four blocks, um, and not really that much that much foul trouble. They, and they led as much as 16, and that, that was how much they led by at the end of this game, I, I do believe. Uh, and so, you know, just looking at these numbers here, and again, I've come to the conclusion about numbers, talking about numbers. This is not – it doesn't define the game itself. It really is just used, or how I intend to use it, is really more of a predictor. These numbers are here to tell you, okay, these are it's kind of predicting how how many yards this guy's going to run because this is this is the average, and so this is what you can expect from him. This one you can expect from this guy. It's all it's all just a matter of that, and and that's what I use it for. Uh, that's that's why I'm, I love numbers so much and and being able to you know, break these down for you and. Uh, and, and for all of these, uh, for all these things here, um, and for the for the matter of, of Southern Sports Central, uh, being the analytical guy, <laughs> the analytical guy that I am, uh, the biggest game th- today would have to be, uh, oh, wow, we we would just have to go down go down the list uh, and see the likes of a uh, Florida State and Louisville, uh, Louisville uh, playing each other. Uh, Two ranked teams in Iowa and Penn State are going to be playing each other as well, and, and not to mention uh, West Virginia and and Kansas are going to be playing each other as well. A, a great slate of games uh, to to just have lined up here uh, on on the docket. Um, you know, Gonzaga is going to be playing at ten o'clock. That's going to be on ESPN two. They are ranked number one in the country. Um, and just to just to again putting this into uh, perspective, this has been a tough a tough year so far for a lot of these teams. Uh, a tough year in particular for the teams that um, that you certainly would expect to see at the top, but it's been the curse of the number one. Uh, there have been nine teams so far, including the one last night. There have been nine teams so far that have lost games. Um, against unranked opponents and, and, and these unranked opponents taking down top five, uh, top five teams. Uh, one of them, which was Ohio state last night, like I mentioned. So, uh, you know, just like, again, looking at the slate of these games here, I think the one to watch would have to be, uh, West Virginia and Kansas. This one's going to, this one's going to tip off at four o'clock on ESPN plus if you have it. Um, if you have it, it's a, a more more bang for your buck. You get tons of more sports coverages uh, across the country, great sports reporting stories and things like that on, um, uh, of course, on the docket, and you can be able to watch on ESPN. So this one's going to kick off or tip off at 4 o'clock. Uh, Kansas, this, this will be the first game uh, for the Big 12 basketball uh, openings now. Kansas comes in at ten and two, eleven and one for West Virginia. West Virginia is coming up, uh, like just coming up through the ranks, and the, and they appear to be back where they belong, uh, being being a fantastic powerhouse uh, for for the Big Twelve and, and making a statement saying that they they belong there. And, and this is kind of rare, rarefied air uh, for the Mountaineers as well. Uh, they're going again. They're going on the road, and they're going to um, they're going to play a team in Kansas who, you know, they they've been able to pump out talent 
year year in and year out. They've been able to just continue to dominate um, the 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 Big Twelve in the basketball respects. And you know, this is this is going to be telling of who who can outstrengthen who, who can be able to outgame who. Um, and, and just with with these predictors, the the consistency is there. Uh, you know, Kansas has put up an average of eight over eighty points. And they've only allowed about 62. Uh, but also West Virginia is, has only allowed 62 as well, and they've scored 74. Uh, Kansas is, is shooting about 51% from the field, um, racking up some great rebounds and, and assists with the, the teamwork that they have. Um, they, they are only on a one-game win streak. They lost uh, to Villanova 56-55, to and that was a very close one uh, against Nova. Uh, and... and West Virginia has uh, beaten the likes of Ohio State, uh, 67 to 59, pretty pretty handily, and they're moving up in the ranks. I would not be surprised to see them in the top 10 uh, by the start of next week. Uh, this game is going to be at the Allen Fieldhouse in, in Lawrence, Kansas, and the Kansas again being very uh, historically prioring on on their basketball. Uh, the spread has Kansas nine and a half, winning this game. Um, expecting a total of 141 points to be scored against these teams um, going, going up against each other. Now, um, you know, they, they, they finished in the conference cellar last season, West Virginia did 15 and 21. Uh, but now the rank number 16th rank, they are 11 and one and carry a four game win streak uh, Sunday uh, in Cleveland against the number two Ohio state. That, that was the, that was the game that uh, talking about, uh, the other one for Ohio State winning their second or losing their second straight. Um, and the head coach, Bob Huggins, that's the 19th victory over a top 10 opponent since he became the Mountaineers head coach in 2007. Now, another such opportunity, it pre- presents itself against the number three Kansas, uh, something Huggins noted uh, when asked about the NCAA tournament atmosphere that uh, enveloped the showdown with Ohio State. Um, so, Freshman guard Miles McBride, he scored a season-high 21 points against the Buckeyes, including six of those points in the final two minutes and 22 seconds. Now defensive uh, tenacity, a trademark under Huggins, has been essential. As West Virginia, they are going to uh, deal with inconsistent shooting from both the field and the foul line. And against Ohio State, the Mountaineers overcame scoreless stretches um, in the second half despite uh, forging its comeback after the break. And now West Virginia has limited its opponents to 35.9% shooting. That is seventh best in the nation, by the way, um, while suffering its lone defeat against St. John's. And the steady pressure the Mountaineers uh, exerted led to 12 turnovers they forced in the second half in the Ohio State upset. Now Kansas looks to challenge for the Big 12 title after a streak of 14 consecutive championships was snapped last season. They are going to be on the hunt. The Jayhawks, their ability to pull out close games could be hindered by their 65% uh, shooting from the free throw line, while that problem incorporates the difficulty senior Yukota Azubuki has with foul shots. Others have struggled too. Now, he is a uh, seven-foot center and is shooting 31% from the line uh, while leading the nation with 79.8% accuracy from the field. Nonetheless, only one starter, that is sophomore point guard Devin Dotson, um, exceeds 
the 70% mark on free throws. Now, Bill Self, he insisted that his team must, quote, play a lot better offensively to be able to keep moving the needle forward against Big 12 opposition. Uh, production on that end has been solid except for the fallout from the foul line. So, again, something to look forward to is the, the Big 12 basketball gets underway this weekend. Um, you know, the Jayhawks lead the Big 12 in scoring at 81.1 points. Again, the field goal percentage at 51.6 and three-point percentage at 36.9. Isaiah Moss is the backup guard. He's a graduate transfer. He has provided three-point support from off the bench and led Kansas with 17 points um, as it slogged its way uh, through a 72-56 win over Samford on Sunday. And so Dodson, uh, Devin Dodson, he enters the conference opener uh, as the Big 12 scoring leader with 18.7 points. Uh, 18.7 points averaging, while West Virginia sophomore Derek Culver is the Big 12 rebounder leader and averaging 9.4 boards. This is going to be an interesting one, uh, and I'm I'm surprised that uh, that ESPN's FPI has uh, Kansas so high up in the matchup predictor at 83%. You know, West Virginia, I I do believe is no joke, but we'll see because this is a game again that's going to be played at the Allen Fieldhouse in Kansas at Kansas. West Virginia being on the road. This is two ranked teams. This is going to be a very good game. I, I do want to believe that it's going to be a very good game. Uh, number nine, Memphis going on, uh, going to play host to the University of Georgia. Uh, that game is going to tip off at 1 o'clock on CBS. Memphis, number nine ranked, going to be favored by about seven and a half points. Uh, the big game here uh, in the Big Ten uh, kind of low on the totem pole as far as uh, top 25 rankings, but nonetheless, these are two ranked teams. Number 23, Iowa, going to number 21, Penn State. Penn State is favored by 2.5. Now, this game is uh, that that spread there, but it, it is an even 50-50 uh, with this, on this matchup predictor. Um, you know, Penn State is uh, – they, they are stretching this four-game win streak that they have currently. Uh, and, and so is Iowa. And the last, uh, the last that Iowa lost was to a Michigan team, uh, 103 to 91. Now, both of these teams they score 80 points a game, just about. Both of these teams are very consistent uh, in shooting from the field and rebounding, team working and assists. Uh, Penn State has more blocks, uh, average on the year, and more steals. Again, this is this is one of those toss-up games uh, that you uh, that you need to look at. Now, when the season began, Iowa and Penn State in January, they were not projected to be a matchup of two ranked teams. Neither team was tabbed for the top 25 in the preseason, and were predicted to finish in the bottom half of the Big Ten standings in the media poll before the season. Uh, but Saturday, the Hawkeyes and Nittany Lions collide in Philadelphia amid heightened expectations. Iowa's 10 and 3. They're an even 1 and 1 in the conference. So is Penn State. They are 11 and 2. Um, Iowa enters a four-game winning streak and they have been a potent offensive team all season. And again, they are averaging the 80 points a game, 36% from the field from three-point range actually. Uh, and has scored at least 85 points in five games thus far. Uh, and leading the way for them is Luke Garza. He is the um, most productive, one of the most productive centers in the country. He's a junior, averaging 21.6 points 
points and an even 10 rebounds, getting double-double, uh, seven double-doubles, as a matter of fact, um, throughout uh, throughout the season so far. And so, um, you know, Penn State, their signature win off the season came on December 10th. They beat then number four Maryland at home, and which eventually put the Nittany Lions in the AP rankings uh, when the poll was released on December 16th. This is going to be a good game, I do think. It's going to be a matter of offensive uh, powers and who can be able to um, outstrengthen who. Um, Florida State is uh, 12 and 2. They are going on the road to Louisville, who's ranked seventh. Uh, currently, both teams have two losses on their record. Uh, Louisville is Louisville is ranked uh, in the top 10, and they they they've kind of slipped just a little bit uh, with those two losses. They are favored by six and a half. This is a game here. Um, where Louisville is expected to um, ex- ex- expected to win, <laughs> FSU is expecting. Um, they are vying uh, a big win right now in, in this game uh, at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. Now this game, um, this team lost an overtime matchup to rival Kentucky, seventy-eight to seventy. Uh, and, and that's uh, one of the things from from their last five. They are coming into this game with a one-game uh, losing streak. Both teams scoring about 76 points each each game, and shooting a little bit less than 50% from the field. Uh, but nonetheless, the teamwork and, and rebounds and assists are are telling. Now, uh, FSU, looking at the numbers, they have 9.7. Uh, steals uh, on on average and blocking 5.6 um, times a game. So defense, I think, for FSU is going to probably try to prove itself and work itself through the woodworks. Um, th- that's going to be enough for the college football or college basketball, I should say. Wow, I guess I still have my mind on football because that's what I'm going to transi- transition into. It's going to be the NFL. We're going to talk about it coming up. Uh, here on the fifth quarter radio show. If you want to call in, uh, be sure to you know be our guest. The number to call in is three two three seven eight four nine six eighty one. You are listening to Southern Sports Central right here on Blog Talk Radio. We will be right back after this break. Shadows in the dark And memories keep on turning 
Welcome back into Southern Sports Central fifth quarter radio show coming at you now. The last thirty minutes of the show, talking about all things NFL. This is uh, Wild Card Weekend after all. Uh, the games that will determine the four teams that are going to be playing next week. There are eight teams now trying to vie for those spots. Uh, only those four spots open right now. Uh, before we get into those matchups, I, I do want to uh, kind of. I kind of look at some of the, the top news that's uh, come out of the NFL the past two days. I know that um, during during the weekly shows, we have not gotten around to, to do those uh, things and to talk about those topics, and that's that's quite all right because uh, I, I do love talking about NFL and uh, all, the, all the things that are going on there. So uh, the 2020 Pro Football Hall of Fame candidates um, were announced – um, on, on Thursday, uh, they announced its 15 modern era finalists uh, for the class of 2020 uh, with former Pittsburgh Steelers safety Troy Polamalu and ex-Indianapolis Colts running back uh, Egaran James among an illustrious group of candidates. That's four safeties, three wideouts, three offensive linemen, two linebackers, two defensive linemen, and one running back. 
make up the 15 names of which five will be chosen for the hall. Uh, now, Troy and uh, Egarin James are two first-year candidates, and, and they, are, they are capable uh, of getting in uh, the, first, the first year that they are eligible. And, they, and the, um, the Hall of Fame, it, go, it goes like this. These finalists, of course, you say, again, safety Troy Palomalu, the running back, uh, Egarin James, linebacker Zach Thomas, um, defensive tackle Bryant Young, defensive lineman Richard Seymour, um, free safety John Lynch, uh, another safety Steve Atwater, as well as Leroy Butler, uh, wide receiver Reggie Wayne, wide receiver Troy Tory Holt, not Troy, Tory Holt, um, wide receiver Isaac Bruce, linebacker Sam Mills, um, you got a tackle and Tony Baselli, uh, and two guards, Alan Fancia and Steve Hutchinson. Now, uh, Troy Palomalu, he was uh, he was a 12-year pro. Uh, he played his entire career with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Three AFC championships and two Super Bowls. He amassed 32 interceptions, including three of them, four touchdowns. Uh, he was an eight-time Pro Bowler, four-time All-Pro. And he won the 2010 Associated Press Defensive Player of the Year Award. Uh, and Garen James, he only needed one year to announce his presence in the NFL by rushing for a league-high 1,553 yards in his first season with the Indianapolis Colts. He followed that with 1,709 more NFL pacing yards in 2000. Uh, and he was a key cog in a dominant Colts offense for much of 1999 through 2005. He made four Pro Bowls uh, for Indianapolis and was a one-time All-Pro. He finished his career with 15,610 yards from scrimmage and 91 touchdowns. Uh, Zach Thomas, of course, uh, amassed 143.5 tackles from 1996 to 2006 for the Miami Dolphins, including an NFL high 165 in 2006. Now, that linebacker, a seven-time Pro Bowler, five-time All-Pro. He played for Miami from uh, 96 to 2007 before one final season with the Dallas Cowboys. He missed just 12 games uh, in that entire span from 1996 to 2006. Uh, Bryant Young, a fantastic defensive lineman from San Francisco, played all of his 14 seasons in the red and gold, starting all 208 games, racking up 89.5 sacks. Um, and he's a four-time pro bowler. He he played a pivotal role uh, in the 49ers Super Bowl win during his 1994 rookie season, making 16 starts, accumulating six sacks, 49 tackles. Uh, Richard Seymour, a key member of the early part of the New England Patriots two-decade dynasty. He's a Hall of Fame finalist. Uh, defensive lineman Richard Seymour uh, played for the Pats from 2001 to 2008, winning three Super Bowls, nearly grabbing a fourth in 07. Uh, he made seven Pro Bowls and earned three All-Pro nods. And he played for the Oakland Raiders from 2009 to 2012. Uh, to round out his career, he finished with 57 and a half sacks. Then uh, free safety John Lynch, he was part of the dominant 2002 Tampa Bay team um, he, he defense played 15 NFL seasons, nine Pro Bowls, amassing 103 or more tackles three times. And the current architect of the 13 and three San Francisco 49ers, he started 15 games for the 2002 Bucks. Uh, he allowed just 196 points. By the way, that team did, and they won the Super Bowl 48 to 21 against the Oakland Raiders. And then after 11 years in Tampa, he finished his career with four seasons in Denver. Uh, Steve Atwater, eight-time Pro Bowler, 
two-time All-Pro. He helped the Denver Broncos. Uh, they helped them win back-to-back Super Bowls in 97 and 98. He missed only five games from, 80, from 1989 to 1998, only five games, and amassed 173 tackles in 1990 alone. He finished his career with 1,180 tackles, six seasons of 103 of those or more, and 24 interceptions. Uh, quickly moving down the list, Leroy Butler. Uh, he, he was the man known as the inventor of the Lambo Leap. He's also a pretty good football player, too, by the way. He suited up for the Green Bay Packers from 1990 to 2001 and had 38 interceptions and 20 and a half sacks. Four-time Pro Bowler and four-time All-Pro had five picks from the 1996 Green Bay Packers, who finished first in scoring offense and defense en route to a Super Bowl 31 win. And Butler started all 96 games for the Pack from 1995 to 2000, a very healthy um, safety there in Leroy. Wide receiver Reggie Wayne, one of quarterback Peyton Manning's favorite targets. He made his way onto the finalist list in his first year of eligibility. Six-time pro bowler Reggie Wayne played all 14 of his seasons in Indianapolis with Manning, calling signals for 10 of them. Uh, He had seven had 100-yard seasons from 2004 to 2010, in addition to a 106-catch 1,355-yard campaign with rookie Andrew Luck in 2012. Wayne uh, was an instrumental part in the Colts' Super Bowl win in 2006. That was Super Bowl 41, which he and Marvin Harrison formed the league's deadliest one-two punch at wide receiver. And then Torrey Holt. He made seven Pro Bowls from 1999 to 2009, had an 11-year NFL career, including two seasons as NFL's league leader in receiving yards, and one as leader in receptions. 920 catches, 13,382 yards, 74 touchdowns during a career that began with the Super Bowl. Super Bowl 34 title with the 1999 St. Louis Rams, who scored 526 points en route to a Lombardi trophy. And then Isaac Bruce, another one of the stars of the St. Louis Rams, greatest show on turf. He's also a well-deserved Hall of Fame finalist. Caught the game-winning touchdown pass in that same Super Bowl. Snatched 1,024 passes for 15,208 yards, 91 touchdowns during a 16-year career with the Rams and San Francisco 49ers. Four Pro Bowls. Led the NFL with 13, um, 1,338 receiving yards in 1996. Then linebacker Sam Mills, a man known for Carolina Panthers, keep pounding Rontra doubles as one of the NFL's greatest success stories. He was undrafted out of Montclair State. Uh, bound around the, C- uh, the CFL and the USFL in the early mid-1980s. And before finding his way into the New Orleans Saints roster in 1986, once there he enjoyed a fantastic 12-year career that included five Pro Bowls and one All-Pro nod. He finished his career with the Carolina Panthers and helped the expansion franchise go from 7-9 and in 1995 to 12-4 and in an NFC Championship game appearance. He had 122 tackles for that team at age 37. Uh, and unfortunately, he's no longer with us. He passed away of intestinal cancer at the age 45 back in 2005. Uh, tackle Tony Baselli is a superstar left tackle. He only played seven seasons but made a big impact in a limited time for the Jacksonville Jags. Uh, he was the expansion, uh, was the expansion Jaguars' first ever draft pick in 1995 and helped guide the team to a 9-7 and record and an AFC championship in its second year of existence. The Jags had the top eight scoring offense from 97 through 2000 with him. And then finally, the two guards, Alice Ancia, the nine-time pro bowler and six-time all-pro, helped open lanes for running backs 
like Jerome Bettis and LaDainian Tomlinson during a 13-year career with the Pittsburgh Steelers, New York Jets, and the Arizona Cardinals. Fancy also helped protect quarterback Ben Roethlisberger en route to Pittsburgh's Super Bowl 40 win in 2005. And one of the best run blockers in the NFL history paved the way for superstar running backs, Sean Alexander and Adrian Peterson during a 12-year career with the Seattle Seahawks, Minnesota Vikings, and Tennessee Titans that ended with a seven Pro Bowl appearances and five All-Pros. That's Steve Hutchinson. Um, Alexander ran for 1,880 yards and 27 touchdowns during the uh, Hawks' 2005 NFC Championship season. Peterson rushed for an NFL-leading 1,760 yards in 2008, all thanks to the run blocker, that is, Steve Hutchinson. A lot of great names on these ballots, and very hard to uh, to pick out which five will be chosen, because once those five are chosen, then you have uh, more that come into the mix. And you have more and more that are going to be coming into that hall. Um, very, very possible. Uh, something else, too, uh, Jason Garrett, as far as we know, is still the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys. No, that's not saying that he's coming back next year. That, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying, though, is that he has not yet been released. Nothing new coming from that. Now, something uh, like something to be noted here, uh, there, there are a lot of uh, coaching, um, like a lot of coaching looks things like that. Now, um, the, the Cowboys did not officially move on from coach Jason Garrett on Friday. Uh, and, and sounds like nothing is expected this weekend. So you can expect to possibly uh, tune in Monday as the saga will continue. Now, there is no official decision that has been made, but the rumors have been, and then they, I guess they've all been rumors because nothing can be confirmed yet. Um, you know, the, jo- the Joneses, Jerry Jones especially, is in talks with them, at, at, with talks with Jason Garrett, and being very, um, very meticulous in what he's doing. Um, and then the decision that he is making out of respect for his longtime uh, head coach. And again, this is, um, you know, this is news still coming out from, um, from Thursday. You know, the, they, the rumor that they're going to part ways, it has not happened yet. Um, and so the Cowboys and Stephen Jones and Jerry Jones, they have moved slowly with the abundance of care and respect for Jason Garrett. The phrase, that phrase expected to conclude soon with Garrett not part of the organization. The next phase to involve candidate interviews will begin quickly thereafter, which right now is very hard because a lot of these teams now, you've got teams that are in the postseason, they're going to keep their coaches for the most part. You've got the other teams that have already fired their coaches, Cleveland and um, – Cleveland and Carolina and New York, Washington. A lot of these teams have they have officially hired on their uh, their teams uh, and their coaches. Um, players said that he said goodbye without saying goodbye Monday. It's been a strange week, folks. It's like it's going to happen, but no word yet that it has. And at this hour, no one has confirmed that any conversation has transpired with Jason Garrett to suggest any final decision. That's uh, Jane Slater uh, tweeting out things. And then uh, one other update, Cowboys head coach Jason Garrett hasn't finished all of his exit interviews either. There are players who have not yet met with him. Now, I, I I'm don't know about you, but this is just going to continue. I feel like this conversation of 
Jason Garrett is fired. Oh wait, maybe he's not going to be fired. What is he? Is he? What? Where is he going to go? What? What part is he? Where is he going to go? What is he going to do? Is he going to go higher up in the organization, or is he just going to be left out hanging, left out and dry? You know, that's that's Jerry Jones's boy right there. And Jerry Jones has lots of care and respect for for his boy and Jason Garrett. And he just doesn't want to leave him without a job. That's just the way it is, I guess. I don't know. It, it, it's very interesting to see uh, how this is all, how the rest of this is going to play out because it is. It, I, I understand that it's a very intricate process, but when when push comes to shove, and yes, there are a lot of coaches that would love to have the Dallas Cowboys job, but there are a lot of these coaches out there right now. I would imagine don't want to don't want to have the pressure put on them with this job so close to uh, uh, so close to the end of this uh, like so close to the end of this year. And you think that with the, just with the timetable of things that have happened, they would already have a coach lined up. There would there would already be a coach in talks, and being able to figure these figure these things out for themselves. Uh, unfortunately, that has not been the case. Now, uh, is something else coming out of of the NFL? This is the the on the AFC side, and the, these are the games that are going to happen. Uh, I'm going to run down with these really quickly. Tom Brady's future with the Patriots are uncertain ahead of the 2019 NFL playoffs. There's no clarity yet uh, whether he will be with the New England Patriots next season. Uh, according to ESPN's Mike Rice, uh, someone directly involved uh, with, with the Patriots organization, he called it a wait-and-see situation. Uh, that, that's ahead of the Pats AFC wild-card round home game against the Tennessee Titans coming up today. Now, win or lose, the game could be Brady's final one as a player, for the home team at Gillette Stadium, it could potentially be Brady's final game in a Patriots uniform or as an NFL player should they fall to the Titans. And since Brady's contract expires at the end of this season, every option is on the table, including returning to New England, signing with another team, or retiring. Now, Brady has not tipped his hand in terms of which he is leaning towards, and Patriots head coach Bill Belichick hasn't offered any hints either. Now, although the Pats finished 12-4 and and won their 11th consecutive AFC East title, this season has undoubtedly been a bigger struggle than Brady and the Patriots have grown accustomed to. And they, uh, with a shocking upset loss to Miami, in Week 17, they have lost the number two seed in the AFC to Kansas City, and forcing them to play on Wild Card Weekend for the first time since the 2009 campaign. Brady's 42, perhaps the best quarterback in NFL history, six Super Bowl champs, three NFL MVP awards to his credit, but the performances by him and the New England offense as a whole this season have left plenty to be desired. I, I'm not going to say that Brady is done. I think Brady will say he's done when he says he's done. But that sharp decline is, is starting to hit. I, I, I do believe that it is starting to take effect on Tom Brady. And he has not had the effective pieces that he has had in the past. He doesn't have a guy like Gronkowski anymore. He, he doesn't have a tight end that, that was even as remotely as good as Gronkowski was. Um, you know, receivers are they, – they are there. They are susceptible to mediocrity and the, the ability for him to, you know, extend plays. He's not, he's not a mobile quarterback. He, he's a pocket passer. That's why you see that they, the New England Patriots, I would speculate, pay – uh, well over a million dollars or $2 million a year or more. However, 
offensive line contracts happen, but that that's that's a lot of money that he pays for his left guard and left tackle to protect his blind side. That's what you pay them to do, right? I wouldn't be surprised to, to see him move on somewhere else. I also wouldn't be surprised if he retired. I would be surprised if he came back with the New England Patriots. Is it, I, I, I do think that it's a year-to-year year year contract now, and it's a team – um, it's a team contract with a, a team option in his contract, I would imagine. I can't confirm that. I don't have the information ahead in front of me that would say that otherwise. But you know, nonetheless, this is uh, information uh, to, to consider. Now, uh, the Giants, they have two interviews set for today with uh, Chiefs offensive coordinator Eric uh, Bianemi and Ravens defensive coordinator Wink Martindale who hopes to uh, replicate Bill Parcell's path. Now, the ex-linebacker coached two years as a defensive coordinator, then head coach of the Giants. Uh, Martindale has helped build a culture around that defense, and players swear by him. Um, Now, something else as well, um, the Browns, they did allow one assistant coach, Tosh um, uh, Lupoy, the defensive line uh, coach, to interview with another team after their crest was initially rejected. Um, now, some Panthers, the, the report was about an hour ago, some Panthers and Browns assistant coaches currently under contract are temporarily being blocked from job interview requests elsewhere until those teams figure out what they're doing at head coach. And then Robert Saleh interviews with the Browns um, today, the 49ers defensive coordinator. Um, he's going to interview with the Browns. And that that's just a handful of things going on uh, surrounding the NFL and in regards to the news. Today's matchups are, are in the AFC. The AFC wild card games are this afternoon, and we will dive into them right now. Buffalo, this one kicks off at 435. Buffalo is at Houston. Both teams hoist a 10-6 record and Houston is favored by two and a half. This is a this is a game um, that is going to be very telling because uh, JJ Watt is going to be coming is is back, uh, and it looks like as far as its uh, injuries uh, reports are concerned that uh, Will Fuller is still questionable, but he most likely will be out uh, for this game here. But JJ Watt, he was a rookie, remember, in 2011 when his spectacular performance against the Cincinnati Bengals led the Houston Texans to the first postseason win in their franchise history. And so right now, it is favored. Uh, the Houston Texans are, are the favorite. They, they have won three of their last five. The Bills have uh, only won two of their last five. Uh, this one is going to be, uh, again, kicking off at 435 at NRG Stadium in Houston. Uh, like a lot to really look at here, um, you know. Buffalo is six and two when on the road, but my question will be, you know, can they be able to rack up points when they need to? Because the Bills, the question for the Bills all season has been, how consistent can the offense be? How can how great can the offense be? Um, there, there's a lot of questions about um, Jared Allen. Um, or Josh Allen, I should say, uh, the pick from Wyoming. 
because uh, uh, against AFC South teams, he he has completed seventy one percent of his passes, um, but only only against for two hundred nineteen yards on this season. Now now for the regular season, he has completed fifty eight percent of his passes, uh, with a quarterback rating of fifty or eighty five point three. I don't know. I was going to say fifty eight. It's fifty three. This game is going to be very telling for the Buffalo Bills. Uh, whether or not that they they are still on the rebuilding phase, or if their chance to win a Super Bowl is here and to push in the playoffs, for Houston it's the very same way, and any pieces that they need uh, to add and to fix, uh, I would start with that offensive line and to prevent Deshaun Watson from from hurting from hurting himself further because man hits that he takes be very hard for him to bounce back. Um, about three minutes left in the show, so going to roll through these real quick. Tennessee at New England. Uh, Tennessee is is a is a success story, really, if you will, because the, the argument was at the beginning of this year, can they win a game at home? But, no, they've really been very stellar on the road, actually, 5-3 and three record uh, on the road. And then New England has uh, – they, they've slipped as of late. Uh, they, they've only won two of their last five uh, games. Uh, and one of them, the, the bad loss against Miami. So Miami uh, coming in and, and upsetting them. New England is favored four and a half uh, in this game. The, the over-under is 45 uh, points. Um, New England is expected to win this game, uh, you know, of course. And uh, so Tennessee, you remember, they fired out uh, their coach. Um, Mike Malarkey after he lost to the Patriots in the divisional round of the playoffs in the 2017 season. He has leaned on his path. A lot of course for the Titans' future. That game uh, coming <clears throat> kickoff 8:15 on CBS. Then on Sunday, 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 the NFC wildcard playoffs. These are going to be afternoon games. Uh, Sunday starting at 1 o'clock, uh, Minnesota at New Orleans uh, in the Superdome. This is going to be the one home game that uh, New Orleans gets. At the Superdome, and they are six and two. Uh, this is uh, this is um, Dalvin and Alvin show is coming to the Superdome. That that is the preview. That's it. That's the preview of the game there. Um, uh, two two questions uh, for the New Orleans Saints. Uh, well, the 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 status of these injuries. Eli Apple is out, and so is Zach Line. Uh, this is this is an even game because it's it could be a toss up either way. Um, you know, Minnesota's ten and six. They're an even four and four. Can um, can Kirk Cousins be able to elevate his game and do what he needs to do, or is Drew Brees Drew Brees just going to be doing Drew Brees things? And then at four o'clock, four thirty, about that time, on over on NBC, Seattle and Philadelphia. Philadelphia is nine and seven. Seattle is eleven and five, almost winning their division. Uh, come down to a game of inches uh, against the San Francisco 49ers. This game is is a must win game. The, the both of these teams really been playing must-win games for a month to get to this point. Philadelphia, uh, most certainly, they are favored 60 percent to win this game, uh, mostly because it is home field advantage, and it comes to down to who is the better, um, who is the better one to uh, overcome the injuries. Uh, Seattle has quite a few injuries in their receiving core. Philadelphia, not so much. They only have one, and that's uh, Nelson Aguilar. He has already been ruled out. Seattle is favored by a point and a half, and the over/under is 45. So again, we will see. Um, we will see how this 
all shakes out. And, again, this is going to be a great matchup of football this weekend. So on behalf of Richie Altman and all of us at Southern Sports Central, I want to thank our sponsors, Guerin's Pharmacy, Matt's Burgers, Fan Zone, and, of course, the Tent Farm. Got to, got to give our love over there. So my name, of course, is Will Porter. This has been the Fifth Quarter Radio Show for two great hours. And we will see you back here on Monday. Uh, you have a good afternoon. Take care, and we will see you then. <laughs>